Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting July 15, 2016, and with Brexit still much in mind, we talk with Colgate University political scientist Edward Fogarty about the article he co-authored in the new WPJ summer issue, Attention Deficit Disorder the G20's modest steps toward a more coordinated fiscal policy. We'll also point out other top features in the new issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, David Cameron is out as Brexit befuddled. Britain gets a new prime minister, and this time it's a woman, Theresa May, 59. She's the second female to lead Her Majesty's government. One profile of May calls her, quote, a ruthless political operator who's, quote, dull as porridge. Like Cameron May opposed Brexit, and there have been rumors that she may try and wriggle out of it and somehow keep Britain in the European Union. The White House says it's looking forward to working with her. Stay tuned. A new U.S.-China trade dispute the U.S. accuses Beijing of failing to lift export duties on certain raw materials, as it previously agreed to. It's the latest spat with China the World Trade Organization has in years past, ruled several times in Washington's favor in such cases. China joined the WTO back in 2001. Mission creep, 560 more U.S. troops are headed to Iraq. The Pentagon says they'll work at an air base that'll be used as a staging hub as Iraqi troops gear up for a battle with ISIS to retake Mosul, that city in the Kurdish area of northern Iraq. ISIS took Mosul two years ago. And the president was a few days ago asked how it felt to be the only president in American history to lead a country at war for two entire four-year terms. Obama's spin was that the U.S. had some 180,000 troops combined in Iraq and Afghanistan when he came into office. That number is now about 15,000. And he reminds us that those troops are engaged mostly in training and advisory roles though he admits that sometimes they still have gotten drawn into combat situations. Both Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, will soon be the problem of a new American president. At the White House, I'm Paul Brandis for World Policy On Air. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Uh, safety, and that flight to safety always uh, uh, raises the value of the U.S. dollar and drives U.S. interest rates down. So uh, that is something which is going to have, it has uh, adverse effects on American exporters uh, and something which uh, is a, p- a feature of the world economy in times of great fear. I, as I say, I don't expect that to be a major uh, uh, c- consequence of this, but I, uh, you, you predicting the psychology of financial traders, uh, or for that matter, the occurrence of credit events which, which uh, jeopardize the uh, uh, solvency of major financial institutions is not a game that I'm prepared to play with any great confidence. The flight to safety predicted on Canadian TV by U.S. economist James Galbraith after Brexit 
referred to a sharp increase in foreign purchases of U.S. government financial instruments, driving down interest rates, strengthening the dollar, making U.S. exports more expensive and therefore less appealing to buyers overseas. That did not prevent the U.S. stock market from rebounding within days, but it did threaten to divert foreign funds away from weaker national economies, most painfully in the always more risky developing world. And with talk about possible further EU withdrawals and fracturing of the United Kingdom itself, the risk to solvency of major financial institutions mentioned by Galbraith raised understandable fears of another global financial crisis on the order of 2008, as well as questions about improvements in the international systems meant to prevent or at least minimize it. Some timely answers may be found in a major article for the new summer issue of World Policy Journal. Headlined, Attention, Deficit Disorder, it finds only modest steps by the G20 group of major governments and their central bankers to create a more coordinated fiscal policy. The authors are Edward Fogarty, Associate Professor of Political Science at Colgate University, and Jean Park, Associate Professor of Political Science at Loyola Marymount University, also a fellow of the World Policy Institute at LMU. Professor Fogarty and I talked about the piece recently for this podcast. Professor Fogarty, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me on. The G20 is generally described as a forum for the leaders of the largest industrialized nations, their finance ministers and central bankers. Remind us how they responded to the financial crisis of 2008 and how well that worked. Well, I think... The first place to start is to recognize that the G20 mattered most during the, the depth of the crisis in 2008-2009, primarily just in existing, um, in showing that the leaders of the largest economies in the world were determined to work together uh, to prevent a, a new Great Depression uh, and to not fall into the trap of what happened in the 1930s during the original Great Depression, which was a series of beggar-thy-neighbor policies. Uh, countries trying to improve their economic situation at the expense of their trading partners. So this very fact that they committed to working together in this big forum uh, was really important in restoring confidence, which was in very low, uh, very low ebb uh, in 2008-2009. The G20 as a forum was useful for helping these key countries to work together on a range of policies uh, involving financial regulation, promoting liquidity in the global economy, um, keeping the global trading system open. Uh, What Gene and I uh, were particularly interested in is fiscal coordination, which is something that doesn't happen very often. Um, And fiscal coordination is when governments make commitments to each other to adjust their tax policies, adjust their spending policies for the sake of international economic stability and growth. And so this is an area where the G20 uh, moved forward in a fairly unprecedented way in 2008-2009, particularly in getting the leading economies of the world to commit to fiscal stimulus, to uh, stimulate their economies to really um, to compensate for the fact that, that global demand had collapsed at this point. And uh, the United States and China particularly led the way with uh, fiscal stimulus uh, well above the, the target that they had set, which was about one and a half to two percent. 
Now, um, you asked the question, did it work? Uh, I think that probably depends on your perspective. Uh, <laughs> on the positive side, uh, the world economy didn't fall into a Great Depression. Um, and that's something that was not guaranteed at that point. Nobody knew it was going to happen. So from that, you know, fairly low bar, but important bar, uh, it was successful. But the recovery, as we've seen, has been relatively slow and uneven. And the limits to fiscal coordination that we've seen in the G20 are, are part of this story. You say the years since have demonstrated how crucial coordinating fiscal policy among these nations can be, uh, but also their failure to create a continuing ability to do so. Say more about that. Yeah, well, you know, here we have to pay attention to what economic conditions exist at what point. Um, when we were talking to IMF officials, they basically said to us, look, cooperation is relatively easy when the floor is falling from beneath you. There was really no question what was needed in 2008, 2009 in this forum. These, these governments needed to stimulate their economies to compensate for the collapse in global demand. But once recovery begins to set in, that's where you start to get debate and disagreement about what's supposed to happen next. And, you know, what began to happen around 2010 was a move away from focusing on government stimulating their economies, spending money on infrastructure and other, other programs to shore up uh, demand. And moving away from that and toward a recognition, particularly in Western countries, that public debt was all of a sudden very, very high. And there was a need to bring this public debt down in order to uh, avoid a debt crisis. And this, was, this attitude was particularly strong in Europe, uh, where center-right governments were generally in power and where a debt crisis had already begun with Greece. So this became, uh, starting in 2010, something of the focus of the G20 forum, but there was not agreement. The Obama administration, uh, among others, uh, was much more focused on the fact that the recovery was fragile and that if you withdraw the fiscal stimulus too quickly, then you could end up strangling the recovery and ending right back where you started. And this is a battle that the Obama administration had to fight, uh, not only in the G20, but also uh, after the elections of 2010 at home with the Republican Congress. So, you know, I mean, if we're trying to sum up what the what's happened or what the what the reality has been in the group of 20 since uh, 2010, we would see that there hasn't really been a consensus on the question of, in fiscal policy, uh, who's supposed to do what and when? Who's supposed to continue to sustain demand and who really needs to bring their, their public debt back down? So that's the, the debate between the growth camp and the austerity camp, and, uh, and as you say, uh, assigning specific uh, places in either camp depending on a, a specific uh, nation within the G20. You say as, as a sidebar that the rise of new economies has made uh, that kind of international coordination and control more difficult for the G20. In what ways? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we need to do a bit of comparison here to uh, the prior sort of directorate of the global economy, the Group of Seven, uh, which involved seven allied, like-minded countries that would occasionally coordinate their macroeconomic policies for the sake of the, the global economy or the emerging international economy. And, you know, here you have with seven countries, um, a relatively small number of players, but also really a dominant leader, the United States. Um, and this mattered particularly during the Cold War, given that these other countries were largely dependent on the United States for, for security. And so this created a context in which uh, you could get agreements about who needs to do what. It wasn't easy, and it didn't happen all that often, but with the 1978 Bonn Agreement, the 1985 Plaza Accord, you have real examples of uh, fairly successful coordination among this small group. So if you fast forward to the post-2008 world, you know, of course what we have is the, the so-called rise of the rest. Right? You have large uh, emerging economies like China, India, Brazil playing a much larger role. And so this forum is not only larger, the G20, than the G7, but it's more diverse. And the position of the G7 countries, particularly in the United States, is weaker than it used to be. Um, you also have geopolitical rivalries among countries in the G20. You have China, Russia, the United States. And so you're not certain that geopolitical rivalry and competition won't be driving countries' economic policy positions in this forum as opposed to a focus on, on sort of the global good of international economic stability. So uh, we, we are in a different world now. Uh, given uh, Brexit, which happened after you uh, two wrote this piece, uh, I'm interested to see that you saw some, some positive signs in the regulations imposed by the European Union. Uh, tell us which specifically and how you think they will hold up uh, given uh, growing Euroscepticism and nationalism on the continent, the outright rejection embodied by Brexit, uh, even though that vote was non-binding and, and, and I guess could yet still be reconsidered. Yeah, um, obviously there's a lot going on right now in, in the European Union, and so to talk about their fiscal coordination as a, an unqualified success would be um, to look at it from a particular perspective. Um, what I would say is that EU fiscal coordination has been strong. It doesn't necessarily mean that the policies that they've chosen have been the best for their economies, but that there has been a commitment to working together to coordinate policies. And this emerged most, mostly in the last 25 years, particularly in the context of the, the uh, Eurozone, when countries uh, who really uh, now shared a single monetary policy, realized that they had to, in some way, coordinate their fiscal policies as well. And uh, especially after the onset of the euro crisis in 2009-2010 with the, uh, the debt crisis in Greece, um, they've agreed to strong rules, uh, basically, uh, European countries have to submit their national budgets to review by the European Union. They've agreed to embed um, what some call a debt break in their national constitution so that they have to reduce deficits and debt if it gets above a certain level. Um, they've agreed that the European Union can fine them and punish them if they breach their 
debt and deficit targets. So this is what we would call strong coordination. But the EU is a very specific and, and special case. And, um, you know, we're talking about decades of uh, economic integration, strong supranational institutions. We can't expect this in the G20 by any means, um, but we do see that under certain conditions, fiscal coordination is possible. Uh, now, are those conditions beginning to collapse? Um, I think that's the, you know, the $64,000 question <laughs> right now. Um, I personally would argue that, that uh, Brexit is not the beginning of the end of the EU, whether in terms of fiscal coordination or otherwise, but it certainly has uh, raised questions about the level of political commitment uh, within countries to international economic cooperation like what we're talking about. Despite the G20's inability to develop clear targets and uh, enforcement powers, you see a foundation for progress in its empowering of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, as a third party, but also what you call an essential partner. How have the IMF's major mandates grown over the years, and where do you see the most effective now? Yeah, um, the, the IMF is the essential partner in the G20 process, and, and it's, uh, its role in the G20 is something that's comparatively new, especially if we're, we're comparing the G20 to the G7, because the, the IMF was not, uh, the, didn't play the same type of role in the G7. Um, specifically, the IMF is, uh, it has recognized expertise, it is understood to be a comparatively neutral third party, and this is important in the G20 process because what the G20 does is that there are not hard targets. There's not this sort of strong coordination that I was talking about with the EU, but rather what they call a mutual assessment process. It's, it's a form of peer review, right, that, um, that countries promote transparency in fiscal policy and report to the IMF on what they're doing and, and share it with each other and so that they can pressure each other through soft mechanisms rather than hard um, institutional mechanisms to pursue uh, fiscal policies that are good for the global economy generally. Uh, the IMF does not really have a fundamentally new mandate under this because the IMF, under its Articles of Agreement, has the authority to promote transparency and to review countries' macroeconomic policies. Um, but it's, it's what's new is really in the context of a multilateral forum that the IMF is now uh, really the recognized referee, and, and this is an important role. Still, you say it's important not to overstate IMF influence on the G20. What are the biggest roadblocks facing it and the G20 itself? Yeah, I think uh, number one is this austerity versus growth debate. Uh, which the IMF itself has, has taken different positions on at, at different times. Um, the IMF is supposed to be uh, the, the sort of promoter of a shared understanding of best practices in fiscal policy. And the problem is, is that the austerity camp and the growth camp have very different views about what constitutes best practices. And they're, they're pretty entrenched in these views. So, it's not easy for the IMF to take sides because it 
to do so in some way would be to undermine its uh, position as a, as a neutral, honest broker. Right? So it's, it faces that particular debate, but it also faces its own history. Uh, in the group of 20, you have uh, a number of large developing countries that have been on the receiving end of IMF discipline over the years. And the IMF doesn't have the best reputation, particularly if you're talking about Indonesia or South Korea, countries that really felt the whip of IMF uh, structural adjustment policies in the late 1990s in, in the Asian financial crisis, Brazil as well, uh, as well as Russia. And so these countries don't necessarily view the IMF with the same degree of um, uh, trust that maybe larger economies that have not been on the receiving end of, of IMF disciplines. There has to be, though, a history of how successful each approach, austerity versus growth, is. I mean, there, there is a fact-based reality on how these, how these different approaches have worked. That, that, that has to give the IMF a little bit more uh, leverage in, uh, in reaching its recommendations. Yeah, and, and the IMF has shifted its position on this, even just in the context of recent experience. Uh, in the period I mentioned when, around 2010, when there was some move toward promoting fiscal consolidation, and what that means, especially for high-debt countries, is some, some form of austerity, that uh, the IMF was in favor because the IMF primary mandate ultimately is to promote international economic and financial stability. And high public debts um, are conditions that can lead to financial crises. So, of course, the IMF uh, has to keep, keep its eye on this particular ball. But uh, the evolution of opinion in the IMF has been that austerity just simply doesn't work. Uh, and it certainly uh, it focuses on European countries in particular that, that uh, the, you know, as you say, the fact-based reality suggests that austerity uh, not only increases the burdens of debts uh, within, within particular countries, uh, but that it, it, it just basically has come to, to the point that, that economic growth is a prior necessary condition to, um, to fiscal consolidation, not, it, you know, the, the ordering of events has to start with growth. And, um, and so this is, this has really put the IMF on something of a, of a collision course with Germany. In fact, it's already there. And um, this is going to play out in the context of the euro debt crisis, which is still not over, um, and the question of whether Greece in particular deserves some degree of, of, uh, of debt relief. The IMF says yes and demands that it happen, um, and Germany says no. And, and this is a reflection of the IMF's move into the growth camp, um, probably more of a fact-based reality in the German position, which is based on its own national experience about, about how um, austere and maybe orthodox policies can be the basis for, for strong and stable economic uh, performance. So with all of this as background and context, I, I guess I see at least four big questions. First, how do you see the G20 and other international structures reacting to another 2008-level crisis if it should occur? Yeah, Gene and I are, are actually pretty sanguine about the, the G20's role in any future crisis. Um, Obviously, we talk about the fact that there hasn't been very impressive uh, cooperation since 2010, but what has 
emerged, and and this is something that a U.S. Treasury f- official really emphasized for us, is that the e, that the the G20 is an institution, and what that means is that it offers a known forum with known rules of the game that um, that the key players are involved in, and so we have every expectation that if we were to see another uh, crisis emerge, financial crisis to emerge, that that this would be the go-to forum and that there would be um, a foundation for cooperation. And and that matters. Um, But, of course, we have to pay attention to which who's in power uh, in the relevant countries. Um, You know, that economic nationalism is on the rise, particularly in Western countries. And... If you were to see economic nationalists in power in, in key governments when any new crisis occurred, I think our, our, our confidence would decrease somewhat um, because, you know, uh, basically international economic cooperation and, and globalism are not exactly uh, very popular these days. Second question, are Brexit and the ripples uh, from it likely to produce uh, a 2008 level of crisis? Well, I guess uh, I, here I'd say I'm a political scientist, and therefore I, I might be out of my depth if, I, if I'm trying to identify conditions that can lead to a new crisis. But, um, you know, what I would say about Brexit is that it, you know, I, I think it becomes easy to see um, the the sky falling um, when something like this happens. But I I honestly don't think that uh, particularly a collapse of the European Union or the euro, the single market, really the entire edifice, I don't see that as as imminent. Um, And surely that would be a a trigger for for a global economic crisis, for sure. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen for for a variety of reasons, um, but maybe one of which is just what I just said about the G20. It's a known institution and and known uh, and and often effective institutions can prove very, very useful in the context of crisis. Third question, if we don't see uh, that kind of catastrophe, 2008 level, what sort of response do you expect to whatever lesser levels of international stress is caused by Brexit or the slowing of China's economic engine or unknown financial shocks still over the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I guess when we we ask the question about what response we might see, um, we have to start by acknowledging the fragility of of a couple of things. First of all, the fragility of the global economy itself, um, but also the fragility of countries' political commitment to having a global economy. And, um, you know, again, if if we can have some confidence that, that the political commitment to having a global economy, to free trade, maybe even some degree of allowable migration, um, if this remains t- intact, then um, Gene and I would retain a fair degree of optimism that, that, uh, you know, that the G20 and, and other international institutions would provide um, you know, arenas for, for relatively successful response. But, but I think that we have to recognize that globalization, at least as it currently exists, is it's neither natural nor irreversible. Um, political choice made globalization possible. Uh, political choice sustained it, and political choice can end it. 
And if anti-globalization or anti-internationalism prevails, uh, especially in some leading countries, then, you know, we think, I, and, I, and here I may be going on a limb regarding Gene, but, but that countries will more likely pursue national priorities rather than the global collective good. So, you know, the status of economic nationalism is, is really uh, very, very important to this, this story and, and to uh, making predictions. And that is the majority sentiment we saw in the Brexit vote and certainly a, a part of the, uh, the engine that's driving uh, the Donald Trump uh, success, at least within the Republican Party uh, here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that this is, you know, the, the bigger story here, when we talk about economic nationalism, this is something that, that crops up over time. And I think a bigger part of the story is the confrontation between political economic elites on the one side who have largely benefited from and supported globalism, uh, broadly speaking, and, and the, um, the public, uh, or at least certain sectors of the public that maybe don't see the benefits from, from the global economy that we have. And so when we talk about international economic cooperation, um, you know, what Brexit re represents, I think, is a moment in which, uh, and, and the, US, the coming U.S. election, in which people, when given the chance to, to vote on these sort of rules of the game that exist upholding the global economy, are not necessarily going to be supportive. Um, but this, you know, this is where we probably should distinguish between normal democratic processes or even slightly separate from normal processes like in the Brexit vote and crisis. And I think conditions are different under crisis. Political elites do have more um, room for maneuver during the context of crises. And, um, you know, so, so I think paying attention to how political elites and, um, discuss uh, why international economic cooperation is necessary, whether in regular times or in the context of crisis, um, is, is, is really important. Their capacity to explain the necessity um, to publics is, is really, really important. And what we see in the Brexit vote is that I'm not sure that political elites yet have the script. Well, I, I was going to ask what two or three steps by what institutions you think are most important to better manage uh, global financial shocks. But, but before that, the, the, the question that, that emerges is, could the spirit of globalization be better, be better appreciated if there were also mechanisms to more equally share the wealth? I mean, I, I don't want to get into the... the, the uh, the Democratic primary fight with Bernie Sanders, but uh, the fact that, I mean, we use the term that the, 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 the common man doesn't see the benefits, and that almost sounds like it's his failure to perceive, but it, the other meaning is he doesn't get the benefits, and we see right. the, the profits being disproportionately directed to the elites, to the corporations. If there were mechanisms to social, politically approved mechanisms to spread the wealth, even if globalization itself certainly beggars certain industries, certain products in certain countries, then there would be more appreciation of it and a, and a willingness to go along with it if the, if the benefits were more equally spread. 
Yeah, I, I personally agree uh, with that that proposition, and I think um, you know this is this has been one of the great failures of uh, some some societies, not others, uh, with respect to how do you adapt a an economic system, your national economic system, to the global economy in a way that continues to offer some economic security uh, to to um, the entire population. And what happens with globalization is that those with relatively fewer skills uh, are in greater competition with, with people who are willing to do the same job for less money somewhere else. And, um, you know, the Economist recently has been uh, really promoting the Scandinavian model, um, which which is uh, sometimes called uh, flex security, right? That you have flexibility, that the that you have the capacity to, um, you know, have a national economy embedded in a global economy and everything that that entails, but also ways for people to um, have. Security, whether in terms of um, you know guaranteed uh, income in some cases, maybe or guaranteed job retraining or other um, other forms of, of sort of the social safety net that can ensure that people that are displaced by a global economy are not left to fend for themselves. Um, this is really the great challenge of 21st century global capitalism. I have to say, countries haven't come up with a set of responses that are that are particularly you know equal to this challenge professor fogarty thank you thank you very much for having me on david edward fogarty is an associate professor of political science at colgate university the article he co-authored in the new summer issue of world policy journal is headlined attention deficit disorder the g20's modest steps toward a more coordinated fiscal policy Featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about the problems with plans for a northern powerhouse in Great Britain before and after Brexit. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea... Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>